we're going to be looking at. And we have found that he has gotten into some really nitty gritty things of of showing here that we are called to much more than than happiness or health, wealth, prosperity, as some might preach today. But we're called to holiness. We're called to purity. And we have found over the past few verses that he literally even tells us what the will of God is, our sanctification, our lifelong process to be sanctified, not just set apart from the world, but set apart unto the use of God and for his glory. And we see that in order to see that, in order to live that in our life, he says that ye should abstain from fornication. Now, verse four, and I'll read down the next few verses and we'll see how far we get this morning. It says, in verse number four, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence and even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And we'll pause there for this morning. Here in verse number four, Paul expresses that each Christian should not only abstain, but is able to control himself in the process of sanctification. We've heard it said many times that you're as close to God as you want to be. And I believe it's true to, to this degree that you and I, what God has called us to do, what he has uh, expected of us to, to, to walk in holiness, he equips us and enables us to do. Do you believe today that the Bible is not just inspired and errant and, and, and infallible, but, but sufficient today? If it is, and it is, by the way, it is not just merely a final authority, but it is our sole authority. It is every bit of authority that we have over our life. And what we find is that it is all that we need. But by the power of the Spirit that now works and, and teaches us the Word of God, convicts us through the Word of God, and encourage us through the Word of God, what we find is that we can grow into uh, not a fully perfect, sinless believer, while that would be nice, but as long as we have on this flesh, we'll never be sinless, will we? But however, we can continuously, day by day, be renewed and grow to be sanctified unto the Lord. Now, sanctific sanctification is both learned and lived. You won't be able to live what you have not learned. And what we've seen thus far is that Paul has talked about all of these things that they have learned to do, that they have learned about all, all the message of the gospel that has changed them, that is the root of everything that they need. And we've talked about this the past few weeks, that we never outgrow the gospel. That the gospel should always be on the forefront of our minds. It is interwoven throughout all Bible doctrines. It's everywhere, constantly drawing us and pointing us to Christ. And as we are being drawn and pointed to Christ, we are being drawn away from the sinfulness of our flesh and this world. That we should be able, as verse 3 says, to abstain from fornication. And here in verse 4, he says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification or honor. Now, whatever trade you might have worked, whatever job you ever had, you had to be taught to do such, didn't you? Right? You didn't just show up on, on the job without any experience, and they said, all right, go for it, right? Now, if you did, you, you probably had to sink or swim there, right? But there's this sort of training, this sort of learning process, this learning curve. God is always teaching us so that we might learn to live what He has called us to live. Now, God has enabled us now, not just to, to know Him, but to learn of Him, to learn from His Word, so that we would not live as we once did. Our life as Christians should look entirely different as it did when we were non-believers. It should look totally different than the world lives today. And so what has happened is much of the world has crept into the church, 
some of which unawares, and some has come in and, and with through little subtle manners and things. Nevertheless, what we find is that with our own life, He says that we should know how to possess this. Now, I want to look at two things with this verse. There's sort of been two thoughts about this verse throughout the years, and, and we're going to look at both here this morning. I believe that both have sort of some, some merit. Nevertheless, what we're going to find here is that verse 4 shows this about your sanctification process. That the choice is yours, right? You've got to choose if you will follow the Word of God or not. Now, I would warn those who feel as if they can have their fire assurance, if you will, that they go, well, I've trusted Jesus, I'm not going to go to hell, but now I can live as if however I want to in this world. Those two do not mix. They are oil and water. When we are born again, we have been given a new nature. Paul had talked about it. The old, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are new uh, creation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we have a new appetite, a new desire. And if there is no new appetite or new desire to follow the Lord and His Word and to even be sanctified, there is probably an issue with the salvation to start with. And so we've got to see here, the right foundation of salvation will lead to sanctification. It is slow. It is uh, related to... Um, long-distance running, it is difficult, it is, it is challenging, there is a continual battle that must be, be seen here. But as we look here, we want to look at what this verse is dealing with. Stott writes, the first half of verse 4 contains the most difficult phrase in the whole letter. Literally translated, it reads that each of you should learn to acquire his own vessel in holiness and honor. Throughout church history, commentators have been divided as to whether vessel in mind is a metaphor for wife or, or for body. If the former is correct, Paul is urging each Thessalonian believer to take a wife for himself. If the latter is right, he is to gain mastery over his body or to control his own body. Now, if we think about this here in the context, which we'll get into in just a moment with the next uh, little blurb here, but in verse 4, following right after that you should abstain from fornication. What do we know about fornication? We talked about this last week. This word that is used for fornication is the word porneus. It is the, the broad general word that is any sexual sin. So this covers everything from lusting to adultery to sex outside of marriage of any kind. This relates to homosexuality, to transgender, to a multitude of sexual issues and perversions, all of which are unclean and unright in the sight of God. They are unholy, right? We have talked about this, how difficult sexual temptation is, not just in Paul's day. We had talked a little bit about it last week where they're living in a culture in a world where to go to a pagan temple, there would be temple prostitutes. There would be countless things all around them, urging them to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And, and what we see is that in Christ, we are told to not give in to such lust. While the temptation may still be there, we are told not to give in to any sort of sexual sin. So when we talk about this, all of us would say this morning that there is not one sin that should be acceptable, right? None of us would say, well, God's okay with these sins, would we? Right? Even in the life of a believer, though we are saved by God and we are covered by the blood of Jesus, it does not give us a right to live as we please. Rather, it gives us the right to live in the liberty that is in Christ, to freely follow Him who is a good and a just master. And even more than a master, He is a father and a friend, and a, and a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. When he's writing here, is he writing saying, if you're struggling with fornication, then get a wife and lead a right life? Or is he saying, just know how to deal with your body? I believe that both are somewhat here in view. McDonald writes, if we allow the context to decide, then vessel means that man's wife 
Then teaching that each man should treat his wife honorably and decently, never stooping to any form of marital unfaithfulness. This reinforces monogamy as God's will for mankind. Now we know this. Paul wrote to many churches at different times, and there were issues. We think of the Corinthian church where there was a multitude of sexual sins happening inside the church that never should have been. And so what Paul is writing here, and I believe that this is twofold, he is saying, look, if you're struggling with these sexual temptations, if you're struggling with uh, this fornicating, and, and, and that word being this such a broad thing, today this would cover everything that we see around us, right? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This is covering every sexual sin that there is, every wicked sexual thought outside of the bonds of marriage. We've talked about this before. And we know this according to the Bible. Sex was given by God for not just male and female, but for husband and wife. Anything outside of husband and wife, it's an issue. It's a sin. And we find that much of the world in Paul's day and the world around us today, right, in our day and age, it is preaching that anything outside of it, it's not sin, it's fine. Just fulfill your sexual urges, your sexual desires. But if that's the mentality, it leads to an incredibly dark road. It leads to a road that, that's end is destruction. Think about this today. In today's world, there are some psychologists who are even promoting that those who we call pedophiles are just minor attracted individuals. Think about the weight of that. They are equating it with all sorts of other things and saying it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal, isn't it? And we should be absolutely appalled at these things. God does not bat an eye at sin. And if we think He does, then we must reassess the cross. We must go back to the cross and see. Because if God bats an eye at sin, then what was the cross for? God punished His Son even for the sexual sins of Paul's day, for the sexual sins of our day. That, that everything was placed upon Christ. Think about this. Sexual sin is a big issue because Christ died for it. Christ died to pay the price for those sins. And furthermore, Christ died so that we would not live in those sins any longer. Sexual sins seem to entrap people now more than ever. And what we find is that when sexual temptation is not dealt with before marriage and in the marriage, it often leads to the ending of a marriage. We see this happen time and time and time again. This is why Paul writes such in verse 4, because of the importance of this. It is every man's individual responsibility to control his own body and to keep his marriage pure. Now, whether this is dealing with this, uh, uh, this sort of um, metaphor for wife or just one's own body, the idea is the same. You must bring it under subjection. You must bring it to where it is sanctified, holy, set apart for God. Meaning this, let's think about this on, on, on a couple of ways. First of all, if you're married, if you're married or have been married, if you are married today, your marriage is not your own. It belongs to God. Your wife belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. This union belongs to the Lord. It was vows made before God and before man, and it was till death do you part. It was under the the biblical principle of what God has given for what the home should look like. And when, when we are still fighting these fights inside of our home that is married, uh, a married home, there is a real issue here. Furthermore, you take it outside of the home and you just look at the individual, right? Think about this. You've got to be able to handle yourself rightly. 
We've got to be able to discipline ourselves. We've got to be disciplined in our thought and our heart and our belief. If not, we will quickly go wayward. Now, when we talk about broken marriages that have fallen into adultery and have been crushed by adultery, and anytime there is adultery, it will bring a crushing blow. Long before there was ever a physical act of adultery committed, what was taking place beforehand? There was the thoughts, the lusting that was never dealt with. And when that is not dealt with by an individual, it will affect more than that individual. And we've talked about this. Our sin always affects much more than ourself here. Guzik writes and gives sort of the, of the other perspective. He says, some interpret this passage so that the vessel each one should possess as a wife and that Paul here encouraged Christians to get married and express their sexuality in marriage instead of them orally. Yet it seems that instead Paul meant to encourage each Christian to possess or hold his own body, his vessel, in a way that honored God. Sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body. Now let's think about this. For every husband and every wife that struggles with lust, what you are doing is abusing your spouse. You are sinning not just against your own body and against God, but you are now sinning against your spouse. Could you imagine such? We don't often think of it that way. We make light of it. We think it's not a big deal. We think, well, everybody does it or it's just natural. Just because it's natural to our flesh does not mean that it's a good thing. As a matter of fact, everything that is natural to our flesh is sinful. And our flesh dwelleth no good thing. Our flesh is profitable for nothing. Therefore, if we are to control our vessel in sanctification and honor, we must be doing so by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. We must be trusting in the power of God. We find that all sexual sin that here Paul is dealing with and that we're dealing with today is that it is overwhelming if we think about its impact and its effect. What we find is that either interpretation of this and truly both call for self-control and living with power over the lustful flesh in our sanctification. I encourage men and ladies alike, because we talked about it last week, statistically speaking, the same amount of people outside the church as well as inside the church are facing struggles and addictions with pornography. It is not just a male problem, but statistically it is as well just as equally, and if not more in certain age groups, a female problem. This means it covers everywhere. No matter where you go in this world, I can tell you something that you're going to find. You're going to find sexual perversion. You're going to find sexual sin. You're going to find sexuality abused. You're going to find a departure from the Word of God about what sexuality looks like, what it should look like, and how it is between not just male and female, but husband and wife who love one another and are submitted to one another in the Lord and are loving one another as they seek to love God more. Instead, what we find throughout our world and what we find in the church and what we are finding at a younger and younger age is this impact of sexual sin. They say that the images of pornography stay on your mind. It's like it's imprinted. You can recall it. That's frightening to think about. It literally, what studies are showing today is that especially from these younger ages, it is warping and changing the mind of our young people today. We wonder why there's such mental illness. We wonder why there's such 
violence and everything else around us, so much of it begins right here. We need to seek sexual purity. And it does not matter what age you are at or what stage of life you're at. You say, maybe, maybe you're older, you're not having this sort of struggle as much. Well, guess what? There's someone younger than you who is struggling with it. Pray for them. Be an example to them. Help them. And do not look at them and scoff and go, oh, well, that's their problem. That's their struggle. It's not mine. I want you to know inside the church, someone else's struggle is now your struggle. Because as one individual family or one individual body or one individual member goes, goes the rest of the body. We need to encourage one another and help one another to remain pure. Now, Paul continues in verse 5 and he talks about this. He says, verse 4, he says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, to control his vessel, to control his body. The idea being sanctification and honor. You should live rightly and you should know how to live rightly. And you should choose to do what is right. He says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Verse 5, he's dealing with that sexual purity is the opposite of the example of the pagan culture. Today, we are living in a pagan culture. America is not a Christian nation. It's no longer, even if it was. Now, you can make arguments for and against. What we find is that we are living in a very paganized world. Now, you would say, well, what about, isn't pagan, does it mean you have to have idols? Well, I can tell you this, we don't have uh, idols that are necessarily wood and gold and silver that are laid up where people go to temples and worship. However, we've got them everywhere else. We've got them, and they're called smartphones. It's called social media, likes on your social media. It is education. It is a multitude of things that we have made into idols that could be good things. Oftentimes, an idol is something that could be a tool that is used for good that is quickly manipulated and turned into something that is used for evil. And then it's worshipped. You say, well, no one would say in the pagan world around us today that they worship their phones. No one would say in the world around us that they worship image or that they worship sports or that they worship certain individuals. However, the time that they spend into those things would say the opposite. The, the time and the money and the attitude and the, the love for those things, it would say the opposite. We have an idolatry problem. We live in a pagan world. And wherever you find idolatry and paganism, you will find immorality and impurity in practice. Sorensen writes, the phrase, the lust of concupiscence, has a literal sense, the passion of impure sexual lust. He goes on to note, how that the Gentile world uh, all around lives that way. That was true then. It certainly is true today. Moreover, he further comments that the world so lives because they know not God. Clearly implied is that a Christian who knows God has no business living in fornication as the world does. The Christian, ultimately, here's the over, overarching theme here. The Christian has no business living in sin, period whether it's sexual sin, as he's dealing with, especially in this passage, whether it's even this. In a group like this this morning, right, we're probably not talking about a bunch of murderers, right? Anyone wanted for murder out there? No one would be, no one's, no one would be willing to even raise their hand if you were, right? But we're talking about people who have walked with the Lord, who have been saved. But I can tell you this, this does not mean that we are free from sin. Rather, what this means is that we sin in a whole lot different ways, but that are just as wicked. 
We live maybe not with such fornication in our life as the world does, but we live like the world does. We have desires that are worldly. We have desires that are fleshly. We are far more rooted in the world around us and caring about the world around us than we are the eternal reward in seeing our Savior. We care oftentimes much more about the world may think of us than we do hearing the, the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We often care about, about meeting the world's standards than we do God's standards. God has greater standards than the world. But God equips us to meet these things in Christ. And then He has called us unto holiness as we get into verse 7 here in just a little while. We find that we should not live as we used to live. We should not live as the world around us lives. Why? Because how we used to live before Christ was living as if we knew not God. Why? Because we did not know God. He says, and not as the Gentiles who know not God. Why? Because the world around us lives as if they do not know God. Why? Because they do not know God. It's been said if you wanted to build a church, go out into the community, ask the community what they love to see for a church, and then go and do the opposite. We, we, we cannot take the world's advice about spiritual things or about sexual things. We cannot take the world's advice on anything for that matter. The world that does not know God does not know how to please God. The Bible tells us that without faith it is impossible to please Him. And to live a life of faith is to not live a life in the flesh that is seeking to fulfill the lust of the flesh only. And that's the world around us. We think much about in the days of Noah as we've been going through Genesis, and we think maybe we're not quite where Noah was in his day, yet we find it fast approaching, where continuously and day by day, it seems more than anything the world is consumed with the thought of trying to fulfill one's own flesh, of trying to make someone, that, rather, everyone is trying to make themselves happy. That's the goal. The life's goal. And what, what I have heard from many Christian parents is, well, you know, I just want them to be happy. That's what you want? I, I mean, it's nice to want your kid to be happy, but we should want them to know holiness, shouldn't we? We should desire that for ourselves. Paul said this is not just coming from himself, but he had said earlier on in the first couple of verses that this is by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying this is Him. This is what Christ demands. This is what Christ expects. Sanctification demands a higher and purer standard of living than the unbeliever has or could ever attain. Sanctification at its very root, it is separation. Being separated unto God. And we need this. And this is tough to hear, especially for a Sunday school and things, because when we look at this, we go, well, maybe this isn't us. It may not be you, but it's someone around you. This has affected our families, our churches, our homes, our community. This is everywhere. People that do not know God will always live as if they do not know God. Therefore, the Christian who does know God should not live like the world. Verse 6, he gets into some of this that may be more a little, maybe, maybe hit home a little bit more for you perhaps. He says in verse 6 that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. Now Green here, before we get into verse 6, had written, and I think it's very applicable, he says, 
Faith and Christian ethics are bound together in such a way that the person who knows God will not be driven by sexual passions, but will rather live according to the will of God. What's the will of God? He told us already. Even your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication. Furthermore, he says, what determines the sexual conduct of the pagans is their desire to satisfy their sexual passions. But the guide to Christian sexuality is knowing God and longing to serve Him. And this leads right into verse 6, that pure living protects our fellow believers. Now, if we think about this, right? Let's think on a level that if I had... I had a big old sore on my right hand. It's green, full of infection. And I walked up to you this morning with that, with that green hand full of pus and infection. And I said, good morning. It's nice to see you. Would you want to shake that hand? None of you? Would you offer me with the left hand? Well, I licked that one, right? Well, you wouldn't want to. Why? Because of the germs, the infection that's there, wouldn't you? You know this isn't good. Something's not right here. It's not going to help me to touch the unclean, right? I could get sick too. What we find is that living purely is not only beneficial for our own sanctification, our own walk, but it helps someone else. Sadly, what has happened to much of our Christian world around us today is that here in America, we love our freedom. I love my freedom. I love the freedom that I have in America. However, what has happened to us because of it is that we have become individualized, where we care more about the individual than the body, right? Where we have cared less about the body of Christ. What I mean by this, and when I often say the body of Christ, we often only think about the global church. I want you to know we're talking about the local church as well here. This is a local body of Christ, a local body of believers. And I will tell you, as I tell me this morning, according to this word, that we must understand here that our own walk does not just affect us, nor does it just affect our own home. It affects our church. Now, as a husband, right, father, whatever you may be, right, uh, wife, mother, you know that your decisions make more of an impact beyond just you, don't you? Right? They're going to impact someone else. Now let's think spiritually. How would you live your life differently if you knew that every sin, every downfall, every victory even, every daily choice to remain pure for God would affect and benefit the church? You would like to think it would. I'm going to tell you this, it's because it will. If we thought about this much more than just how can this affect me, but more so of how will this affect my church? How will this affect my home? Would you bring something into your home that would endanger the ones that live in it? Of course not. So let me ask you, would you bring something into this church that would endanger it? Sadly, what often happens is we come with poor attitudes or defrauding. And as he gets here, he says that, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. In anything. We should not only keep ourselves pure, but we should, keep to, we should desire to keep our homes pure as well as our church pure. 
That's not legalist. It's not pharisaical. It's desiring to give God what God deserves. And God desires and deserves a pure bride, a pure body. Guzik writes, when we are sexually immoral, we take advantage of and defraud others and we cheat them in greater ways than we can imagine. The adulterer defrauds his mate and children. The fornicator defrauds his future mate and children. Both defraud their illicit partner. And we make this broader, whether it's sexual sin or any sin for that matter, it's going to affect much more. Thomas writes, to have relations with a woman outside of marriage is not just a trespass against God's law, it also defrauds a fellow believer who eventually will take this woman as his own wife, or perhaps has already done so. And especially heinous sin because the one robbed is a spiritual relative of the robber. Paul does not allude to the other injustice, which is quite obvious. The woman herself is an object of cruel abuse in such a situation. This too is repulsive, especially in a Christian setting. We find here the great need to be sexually pure. Everything that comes into our mind, we should think things that are pure, think on things that are pure. We should seek things that are pure. We should live purely. And when we don't, we defraud one another. If we all came in here this morning wearing a white robe, for example, on top of our clothes, right? First of all, people probably look at us a little funny. We'd be a little different. Well, if we did that, and we did so because we wanted to show and express our purity and our desire to remain pure, but then some of us walked around with unconfessed sin, with red paint, and accidentally bumped into one another, what would happen? Would we keep those white robes? No, we'd be stained pretty quickly, wouldn't we? Beyond sexual sin as well, what if we started throwing a little bit of mud from our mouth? Gossip, pride, envy, jealousy, lust, all these things, right? What would happen? Now we've got red paint, now we've got mud being spewed, and now we're not wearing white robes anymore. We're wearing white robes that are covered with sin, with filth. Do you care about your sanctification? We should, shouldn't we? Because God cares about it. But let me ask a broader question. Do you care about your brother's sanctification? Do you care about the person in the pew or in the aisle across from you that they are walking with the Lord? That they are walking rightly with the Lord? Not in a way of going, well, I just want to make sure that I walk right with the Lord better than they do so I feel better about myself but in a way in which you want them to be elevated as well, caring about them even more than yourself. Where you desire to have a pure church, a desire to have a pure way of life. Here he says, and he makes it very clear that Paul reminds him of the warning of the judgment that awaits unforgiven sexual sin. God will avenge those that have been abused by it. He says that no man go beyond to defraud his brother in any matter. And here, it's the in context, dealing with some sort of sexual sin, there should be nothing there that, that would cause us hurt to, to hurt one another um, with sexual sin, sexual impurity. But what we find is that when we are living in unconfessed sexual sin, is that we are hurting our brother, whether we believe it or not. We may think that what we do in the dark where no one else sees only affects us, but it will affect your spouse, whether you think you have them fooled or not. It will affect your church because you will slowly but surely show up to church just thinking about your sin, 
carrying the weight of your sin. You will only think about the flesh. You will not think about the purity of the bride around you. and You'll begin to slowly but surely make a mess of things. Do not defraud one another. He says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified. There is a clear warning for sexual sin. There is a clear warning for defrauding one another with any sin for that matter. There is an issue and a warning for impurity. You say, well, what can we do about it? What if I have an impurity in my life? You do what 1 John tells us to do. Confess. We must confess to Christ. We must ask of His forgiveness to have Him cleanse us from our sin, to purify us, and He will do just that. Do not think for a moment that God does not desire to to purify you. As a matter of fact, He desires to do so. But when, when we remain in unconfessed sin, we remain impure. McDonald writes, and we'll be done here. Paul reminds him of the warning of the, excuse me, sexual sins bring on a terrible harvest of physical and mental disorders in this life. But these are nothing compared to their eternal consequences if they are unconfessed and unforgiven. You say, well, what if this isn't me this morning? What if I'm not struggling in that department? Well, praise God, first of all. And know that it's only by His grace that you are not. But I would also tell you, pray for those that are. Make sure that in your life that you are living purely and seeking that God's people in His church and your family would be pure before Him. As we close this morning, let's ask the Lord to purify our hearts. As we're preparing to worship Him this morning, may we expect that we're going to meet with God. We're going to hear from His Word. We're going to fellowship with one another. We're going to hear from a missionary. We're going to, we're going to hear the preaching of God's Word. And all of these things are not just to glorify God, but as well for our good to purify us from the inside out. And we ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. God, we ask that now that You would purify us. You would purify us of any sexual sin that's in this place today in our hearts and our minds. God, that You would rid us of these things. God, that You would draw us near with a clear heart, a clean heart before You so that we might worship You in spirit and in truth, that we might fellowship with one another, that we might encourage one another, be an example to one another. God, that you would purify your church, protect your church from sin. God, that we would see Christ today, that you would be magnified and glorified in all things. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.